Welcome to the Gatecast. Presented by Alan and Mike. Lucy, I'm home. I am not Lucy. Oh, you're right. We'll just upload a computer virus into the mothership. I was going to do my living room like this. is that anyone attempting to leave them out should be shot on sight. Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and general greetings, and welcome to Gatecast wrap-up for Stargate Season 7. We'll be covering, obviously, as per the previous wrap-up, the entire season in about four or five minute lump with uh, assorted clips. In addition to myself and Mike, that was your huge say-lo. Good evening, everybody. We also have... Well, you're on, you're on a roll, you see. I'm never quite sure when you're pausing for breath and when you just pause. Uh, yeah, yeah. As you can see, folks, the usual level of planning has gone into this. Smooth sophistication every step of the way. Which is your cue, Dave. Would you care to talk about yourself and if you feel like it, pimp your podcast? Uh, you're a gentleman, sir. Thank you. Uh, I am Dave Robertson. Uh, I am the, I'm one of the co-hosts of the Roundtable Podcast, which you can find at www.roundtablepodcast.com. On the podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to myself and my sibling co-host, Brian Humphrey, and someone, uh, a published author, uh, an editor from a publishing house, somebody in the publishing industry. And then after the writer presents their story idea, we take about 45 minutes and we just riff on it. We, we explore it. We dig into it. We say, ooh, what if, what if he wasn't a guy at all, but actually an alien from outer space? What would that do to the story? And generally try and explore every possible creative branch and, and notion to make that story as awesome as it possibly can be. We, we do that weekly. We, uh, we interview the authors that we have on first. That's our 20 Minutes With segment. That drops every Friday. And then every Tuesday, we have the workshop episode where the writer comes on and we just get into this whole creative froth and explore whatever and wherever it takes us. It's, it's, it's been a blast so far with, with many more to come, I hope. That should be a hashtag, creative froth. Creativefroth.com. Yes, that's going to be my no, I think I could hashtag that and see if I get a trend. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Especially in the adult entertainment industry. Sure, sure. <laughs> or or the, the coffee industry. You know, there's all, everybody like that. Well, coffee's froth. too easy. Well, yeah, good point. Let's shoot for the moon. Let's go for it. You are for entertainment to moon. You're, we're on similar lines. There. there we go. There we go. We can just riff this metaphor all night long, man. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me on. I'm, Stargate has been one of those iconic franchises that, you know, the mythology that they evolved over the many seasons of the show, the characters, it was amazing to appreciate to join you guys for the season wrap-up, because this was, this was an epic, epic season. Well, assuming we don't permanently traumatize you, I'm sure uh, you're welcome to pop on this <laughs> Hopefully I'll be a little bit more resilient than that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that wish of, of continued sanity. I'll do my best. Possibly against Mike's own better judgment from next season, we're going to be alternating SG-1 with SGA because SGA launched at the beginning of season eight. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's somebody's clever idea, isn't it? <laughs> Not better, are we, Mike? <laughs> Which was one of the reasons we did this move, because I purchased at the uh, rename from SGMT to the Don S. Davis Memorial Auction at Dragon Con, a signed Jason Momoa doll. Wow. By Jason, by the way, not by Gary Clark, who signed pretty much everything, <laughs> as he said, to make it real. 
of course, for the first hour of the auction, being sleep deprived, it being con day effectively four for me since it arrives on the Thursday, I confuse Gary Shaw with Walter. Oh dear. <laughs> Awkward. It could have been worse. You could have confused him with Donis Davis. <laughs> oh my god, he's a zombie shoot him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I actually watched the zombie episode of uh, Supernatural last night, 5.15. Dead men don't wear plaid. Yeah. <laughs> our Australian friend Shane, an occasional guest presenter. And props to Shane for guesting on our show, considering he's nine hours ahead. Time zones are not your friend, man. My friend Paul is texting me about the new Fringe title sequence. Does he like it? Yes, he does. But I am paranoid about spoilers. I don't even want to know if people <laughs> like things or not. Because that, that creates an expectation in me that it'll be good. You're going to watch out the UK piece then? I don't know when Sky are launching. I'm assuming, given the rate, that I haven't seen ads for it. Because last season they showed it about four or five days behind. Yeah. But I haven't seen any ads on Sky for it. Right. I won't be getting Dodger until Hogs Watch. A friend of mine in the UK is purchasing one of the seven editions that exist for right. bookstores have released their own special edition with different add-ins and there are completionists who will want all of them. Sure. <laughs> Which is why at Pratchett Charity Auctions I have a minder. <laughs> Just to rein you in. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Someone Alan, a... stop bidding. Stop bidding now. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is Sue has now lost a weight equivalent to her current boyfriend. <laughs> for her. She said, I've lost a Graham. <laughs> Graham will now pass into Discworld history as a measurement of weight. There you go. There's a writer, Nathan Lowell, who has such prodigious word count in his in his writing that his name is now a unit of measure for word count. When you when you ten thousand words a day, you've you've done a Lowell of writing. Nice. His books are chunkier than Peter F. Hamilton's? Actually, no. He just writes a lot of them. His Solar Clippers series, there were six books in the series. His editor almost hated him. He submits like seven manuscripts in a three-week period. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It can only imagine that that's a real challenge. It's marvelous stuff. I highly recommend his work. Coming back on format, and thanks for that introduction to yourself, Dave. Considering that these things are usually long enough, Oh, yes. They tend to go on a bit. I've seen a Raw, I think, because uh, I had to record it on one occasion. I believe the Raw cut was about three and a quarter hours, and the released episode was two hours less than that. Yeah, I can normally cut about half of it. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not getting any faster at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Yeah, I think all the television I could be watching, that's me, Mr. Productivity. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I did burn out slightly on Smallville, having... Uh, Watch season seven, episode four on Saturday, and watch season eight, episode four on Monday. So are you just watching episode fours for all the seasons, and then you go no, back and do episode no, no, five? Actually, sorry, on Friday, I watched season seven, episode four. By Monday, I was up to episode four of season eight. Ah, got you. So you, you, you <laughs> right. rammed through and just... About six a day. Wow. Shall I spoil it for you? Clark Kent is Superman. Ah, you bastard. <laughs> Sorry, season eight, episode four. I'm into season nine now. There's a lot of nod to, uh, there's more nods to Superman as he is, you know, sort of uh, he mentions two separate identities and he mentions Green Arrow wears a cape at one point and he says, you should try the cape and Clark's like, no, that'd look ridiculous. <laughs> Something I didn't realize until it was mentioned in one of the commentaries on season eight. He's six five. He's a big guy. And if you've seen the cover of Superman Earth One, it looks like Tom Welling in Hoodie. Yeah, television has a lot of influence on the other media. 
my single shining hope now is with JMS Studios launched, we might actually get a B5 film. Because he doesn't need studio approval. He has his own freaking studio. <laughs> you heard about Michael O'Hare? I did. Oh, no. I couldn't actually fit in a tweet all of the B5 cast members who've died. There's been quite a few over the last few years, haven't there? Because I was all hoping to see Michael at a con. But I did actually hear, I mentioned him at Dragon Con, and somebody said he wasn't well. Yeah. I think the slight hiccup with Michael is that he was at heart a Juilliard trained stage actor, and you could see that in television. And unfortunately, stage acting in television can come across as rather wooden. Yeah, there are definitely nuances to each performance style, definitely. Subject of nuances to performance style. Shall we proceed into uh, Season 7, Episode 1, Fallen? Yes, I know that was a stretch of a link, but I was trying to get us back on topic. <laughs> oh, do let, <laughs> by all means. Come try ya! Okay then, Season 7 kicks off with Fallen, and we get the return of Daniel Jackson, naked. <laughs> Whee! In fact, the uh, local uh, tribes people give him the name Arom, which is, in their language, naked. Quite fitting, I thought. <laughs> in season six, Michael Shanks has been uh, on vacation, and over the year, I think he realised he'd rather be working. Unfortunately for Corin Nemec, who, well, didn't do a bad job in season six. I'll, I'll admit, on second viewing, I took to him a lot more than I did first time around. Although that could be because I knew he was leaving after a year. <laughs> He's just a temporary Michael Shanks. Yes. <laughs> I think Curran brought his own sort of a unique foodie style to the role. Oh, yes. yes. Style. It's a joke between me and Mike, as Mike pointed out after, which I noticed after a mere nine episodes, despite Mike pointing out every recording, certainly for the first half of the season, Curran Nemec wasn't on screen without either food or drink or something. He was to food what RDA was to picking up things and fiddling with them. I'm sure that was a, a conscious choice on the producer's part to make him more human. You know, when somebody's always eating or something, that's something you can relate to immediately. So that might have been a, to try and get people to engage with him or and accept him more readily. Let me say, everything he ate was new to him. You know, uh, most of the fruits and vegetables on Earth are not indigenous to his planet. So why wouldn't you try everything? Sure. The actual episode itself has SG-1 visiting the planet, well, I don't think they can actually give the planet's name, but a settlement called Vizuban. That's where they find Daniel, who uh, has no memory of where he's been this last year. Convenient. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Anubis, who hiss and all that, has got his <laughs> super starship kind of running rampant around the galaxy. Blowing things up. Yes, basically anything he fancies. The great thing about this episode, though, of course, is that the good guys come riding to the rescue, uh, 7th Cavalry-wise, or Star Wars-wise, even. Yeah, this is the one where the, the F-302 was figured prominently, right? Flying down the uh, trench. Yeah. <laughs> ah, the, yes. There wasn't a trench. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a trench. They're, they're, I don't see TIE Fighters. It's not a Millennium Falcon. It's not an X-Wing. It's just an... <laughs> I presume that was called the F-302 because it was called the X-302. They'd think it was just taking the piss. <laughs> but seriously, folks, we're here all week. <laughs> uh, depending on the length of recording, we might well be. <laughs> <laughs> I better get more food. Hold on. <laughs> He's abandoning us. The episode was written by Rob C. Cooper, directed by Martin Wood, and it got four votes in the uh, season seven poll, so not too shabby. You normally say where that puts it, roughly. <laughs> Put it this way, it's not last and it's not first. Did we get many episodes with it, or are you just going to mention them as we come along? I'll mention them as we go along. 
speaking personally, I didn't vote for it. Mike, did you? I didn't vote for this, no. And I don't think Dave, not having really been aware of our podcast until a week ago, got a chance to vote. <laughs> I did not. I did not. Although if I had known about it, I probably still, of the season, this was a very cool episode, but not the episode. No. No. Some of the highlights in the episode. Tilk is arrested by Lord Hugh. We have the Star Wars reference when Jack and Sam are in the 302 and he wants to be the Red Leader. Mm-hmm. Jonas is captured, and that leads to all sorts of trouble throughout the season. If there was one act you could turn the clock back and have him do something different, it would be not to pause and watch the bad guys running into the room. Yeah. Jonas was always a bit sort of naive. He was kind of season one Daniel naive, where Daniel only wants, oh no, everyone's friendly, let's not shoot people. Yes. Daniel season seven, to reference an episode we recorded on Tuesday, but won't be broadcast until December. Daniel Jackson at this point is more Michael Weston. You know, let's blow stuff up. (laughs) Which is a real departure for Daniel. I've got one decent quote from this episode. Well, this one just kind of jumped out at me. One of the natives looks at Tilk and says, is he Jaffa? And uh, Jack, of course, deadpans it. No, but he plays one on TV. (laughs) When I saw RDA at Dragon Con some three and a half weeks ago, people have a tendency to duck out of the room early, maybe five, ten minutes early, so they can start queuing for the panel that's on after. Right. And Jack sees some people ducking out of the room and does, I can't actually do it, but, you know, there's a triple whistle call to a dog. <laughs> yes. He does that and he goes, hey, hey, come back, come back. I'm not finished yet. Sit down. This is the good bit. Jack's always good for a one-liner. He is, yep. Not always off the script as well. It's one thing he does ad-lib well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some directors hate that. Most writers really hate it. They put blood, sweat and tears into their uh, script and to have Richard Dean Anderson casually ad-lib stuff they didn't write and have it sound better than stuff they've written themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real rub right there. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Producer. All Richard Dean Anderson has to do is think about it for a week and come up with one or two lines. They have to create the story conception and idea and produce a full script for everyone. Right. To give nods to the writers, it's probably easier for Richard to come up with the odd line a week after he gets the script than it is to write the damn thing in the first place. Sure. And the writers have to keep everybody in mind. The writers are constantly keeping every character in mind, making sure the arcs are right and the the characters are, are accurate. Anderson only needs to have his character in his head. So he has a lot more room to play. I mean, he's already living that character. The writers are are writing everyone, and Anderson's only writing himself. So he has a little more room in his creative plate to play around in. And even then, you know, all he's got to do, if he's got nothing to say, is just think of his favorite Simpsons episode. Boom. Or, of course, The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I don't know if that's an Andy McKeita thing, or is it actually an RDA thing or a general Stargate thing with Oz references? Well, it goes way back, long before Andy Makita was contributing. My friend Paul actually said to me, how the hell does Mike keep track of all the writers, producers and actors' birthdays? He was quite impressed by the sheer number of birthdays that are up on the site. <laughs> I'd like to say it's me, I'm wonderful, but it's basically the internet. Wikipedia, IMDB and a couple of minutes research. <laughs> there you go. One Google uh, search and you got what you need. Come try ya! Okay, moving on to a uh, subject of elections and general leaders, we have more Anubis. And this is an issue I had with this season and several other seasons. Homecoming Part 2, even though we didn't have a Homecoming Part 1, which is something I've been at length to point out. Well, technically, it's the third part of a trilogy. 
Yeah, this is three of three. Oh, I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> Quite. Yes, Homecoming. Anubis has been watching Independence Day. <laughs> and so have the CG people. And something that Michael always, well, Mike, has always been keen on, lovely shiny shots of spaceships. Oh, my, yes. Spaceships are good. And a real gallery of bad guys, too. Holy crap. Oh, yes. Jonas is now the prisoner of Anubis, who's been uh, using the bikey mind probe on him. Which I believe we commented at the time that we hoped it wasn't a suppository. <laughs> I don't think it mattered wherever it was shoved. It would yeah, hurt. That final effect is like, I mean, every watcher went, ooh, oh my god, oh. <laughs> it was well done on the tech part, on that part. It's like, holy crap, don't put that anywhere near me. So he's in orbit over Jonas's home planet, Langara, looking for the Nequadria research. Tilk, meanwhile, is uh, the prisoner of Hughes, first prime, a shoe. He's trying to convince him to throw his weight behind Ball, leading the uh, Gwold fleet to attack Anubis. Lovely, lovely man, Colin. <laughs> Colin? Cliff. Oh, right. I know where I get confused. It began with T. Yes, we've got to see Ball on screen for a little while. The ladies swooned and I don't know what uh, Alan did. I got to see Ball hungover. It was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, hungover Cliff Simon, they didn't even need the voice changer. He could sound like a ghoul. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, he's got very good accent, hasn't he? Asking your questions so loud. <laughs> Did wince when someone shouted into the microphone. Written by uh, Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully, directed by Martin Wood. Alas, we did not get any votes for this episode. Uh. Which is a pity, really, because it does have some very good special effects. The uh, orbital fight between Anubis's super starship and the Gold fleet. Uh, well done. And we do, of course, meet Herak, yes. uh, played by Michael Adamthwaite, Anubis's first prime. Wonderfully overacting again opposite Richard Dean Anderson. <laughs> and that's a hard task to do, considering how much overacting Richard can do in the movie. <laughs> You've got to imagine they worked on that offset. It was just too good. Thoughts on this episode, Dave? Had I known that I could vote on it, I still wouldn't have voted on this episode. Even though it was it was a three of three, it felt like, and, and this happened periodically throughout the entire series, that there were episodes that had a wonderful sense of closure and drama and other episodes that really just seemed like bridge episodes. We need to wrap this up so we can get on to the next thing. And that's very much what this one felt like for me. Fabulous special effects, but the effect on the storyline was incidental. It didn't really feel like this is one of those, I stuck it, man, we nailed. For that reason alone, I probably wouldn't have voted for it, but but you're right. The FX were, were stunning. It was, you know, the whole over-the-home-world the vision, wonderful gravitas, wonderful suspense and, and impressiveness. It didn't sing for me. It didn't, it didn't make me go, yeah, this is why I watched Stargate. Well, you do get that impression when they were writing these scripts. They knew... Michael was coming back and they were gearing it up to having Jonas walk through the Stargate at the end of the episode. Right, right. A lot of the things that do happen off camera pan out later in the series, especially with Jonas and Anubis. Sure. At the end of the day, you do think this is a transition. The yeah. season starts now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a quote for this episode right at the end. Daniel Jackson after rejoining SG1. Quizzical look on his face. We get paid for this, right? <laughs> Well, he does, whatever about the military. <laughs> yeah, he's a civilian. He gets a Blackwater sort of money. That's right. He's a mercenary. He's a mercenary <laughs> scientist, yeah. Yeah, archaeologist with a gun. <laughs> Hello, Laura Croft. No, different different franchise, sorry. <laughs> the resources Anubis has got after conquering dozens of system lords, probably more than we've ever known existed. He probably is knocking ships out left, right and centre. 
The only reason is big superstar ship, we don't see much of it, is the power source required to operate the main weapon, which is why he was over Langara in the first place. Nicodria, you were going to say Nick. I probably was, yes. Even when I write it down, I still think Nicodria. Sorry. (laughs) Well, he was there to Nick the Quadria. Yes, that's right. There you go. (laughs) See, nice save. Contraia! Episode three, an actor apparently born to play Jack. I have to say, and we, we both said this, it's mostly Mike, so I'm just catching off what he said, but the actor they got to play, young Jack, just had a lot of the mannerisms down pat. Oh, he was beautifully coached, beautifully coached. That was marvellous. Beautifully coached? I think props to the actor. Who was what, 13, 14, when he played the role? Yeah. It's hard to say, as they've said on Galactic Watercolour, you can get 22, 23 to play 16. You have to get 12 or close to it to play 12. Biological changes which kick in at a certain stage, you can't play 12. <laughs> You're not going to 12 year old with a beard. <laughs> Mini Jack was played by Michael Welsh. He was 16 at the time. One of the reasons he did pull off the role so well, he was given tapes of earlier Jack performances. While you can give credit to uh, his resource material, it's still up to the actor to actually do the job. Sure. And he did do it well. The story was from Peter DeLuise and Michael Greenberg. It was written by Damien Kindler and directed by Peter DeLuise. So there were a lot of payment done for this episode. It was all just split between the three of them. We also get to meet an evil Asgard, or a misguided Asgard, let's put it that way. Loki. Yay, Loki. That was inevitable. It really was. There's no way you can have Asgard named Thor and so on and so forth without having somebody come up as Loki. That's quite right, yeah. Brief digression again. The Almighty Johnsons, has it impacted on your radar? The Almighty Johnsons? No. It's a Kiwi show about family of young, basically, people that turn out to be gods. Oh my. It contains swearing, drug-taking, and adult situations. It's bloody hilarious. It sounds like a fabulous premise. The Mighty Johnsons. You... The Almighty Johnsons. I've made a note. I will, I will attempt to find it on Netflix. If not, I will find it online because everything is on the internet. That is true. <laughs> Except for the Joss Whedon Avengers commentary, which I can't bloody well find anywhere. Yeah, probably had that locked down under. My, my understanding is if you can grab an MKV of the DVD rip, it should be on that. When one turns up, it will be yours. Okay then, Fragile Balance got one vote. Ooh, do we know where from? I told you it doesn't specify to that degree. <laughs> I suppose if I, I paid for a premium account on Twitpole, it would do, but I ain't paying for Twitpole. I think this one earned its vote because we finally got to see the evil Agar. If nothing else, that new story territory that really hadn't been explored at all. That alone, it, it deserves at least one vote. Definitely. Anything that looks that cute and cuddly has to be evil. <laughs> You're a cynical, jaded being, Alan. You know that? <laughs> I've been working for the Irish government for 21 years. Uh, that would do it. That would do it. Nothing with such an inflated sense of superiority can exist without knowing more about what's going on than we do. Sure, and reveling in our ignorance. Absolutely. Moving swiftly on, 7.04, Orpheus, and a sort of show within a show within a show. Yeah. We have a triple thing, and we have the whole... It it, it was strange, because when we reviewed this, I was heavily buried in season two of Rescue Me. Seeing all of the uh, Fire Station references, but you could see, as Mike pointed out at the time, (laughs) you know, Jack is the chief. What? What episode are you watching or talking about? I'm talking about a different one, am I? Yeah, yes, you are. Oh, okay. Well, this is Orpheus, right? Yes, Orpheus. Braytak and Ryak on the prison planet, building Anubis's starship. But it's also got Jackson 
starting to remember some of his ascended goodness and applying that to aid the SG teams. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay, all right. I'm on track. Yeah. I'm lost. Where was I? Apparently watching Rescue Me. (laughs) You were talking when Tilk was a fireman in last season. It was still a good episode. Very similar. A couple of realities. You're going to leave that in, aren't you? Of course I'm going to leave it in. It's hilarious. (laughs) It's podcasting gold, man. (laughs) Yes, Orpheus, written by, written and directed by Peter DeLuise, did not get any votes, unfortunately. Oh, no. Daniel, as mentioned, starts recalling some of his time as an ascended being and remembering that he had spotted Braytak and Ryak and other three Jafar toiling in the gravel pit. So other, other not so free Jafar. Free only in name, unfortunately. <laughs> Duck on a planet called Erebus, the hell where Jaffa go to die. Oh, really? I thought that was, the, that was the moon they blew up in season five. You know, the one where Jacob was almost baked and the one where we, where we discovered that Apophis isn't dead after all. Oh, so cause. Yes. Don't ask me what it was, because I'm not <laughs> looking and I can't remember. It was hellish, but not hell. hellish. <laughs> it was all lava and red lighting. The only, you know, heat and whatnot is from the smelting machinery. Just one kind of big cogwheel. Don't ask me how it works. It just works. <laughs> Mineral and ores go in and Super Starship gets built. Somewhat similar to DS9. Yes, on anti-grav, which is quite remarkable, really. But handy, if you want to destroy the ship, just destroy the anti-gravs with a bit of C4, which is what Sam and Daniel do. Ah, C4. Infinitely versatile. We get a nice little quote from this episode. It's time for plan B. We have a plan B? (laughs) No, but it's time for one. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah. Adventuring by the seat of your pants. (laughs) So Doctor Who still? Very much. (laughs) <laughs> Which will be on in 16 minutes. Did this episode get any votes? No votes for Office. Yeah. For Office. I have an issue with bringing back Michael Shanks was, was an excellent move on the part of the producers. I don't, and having him go and be ascended, that was a wonderful exit line for him. It made so much sense. Having him come back was like Marvel bringing back Jean Grey after she had made this wonderful sacrifice and she was dead but having him de-ascended uh, and then constantly invoking his previously ascended status really got un- under my skin just in terms of a fairly heavy-handed writer's ploy to get an actor get a character back into the storyline and this one you know with Michael Jan ooh I remember bits from my ascension blah 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 i was just like oh god can we move on please so just enough to keep the plot going but not enough to solve it yeah not enough to really add anything to it just to give it a swift kick every now and then to make sure it's moving yeah we did riff on that because we recorded on tuesday an episode of born notice which had michael jackson's character dying it because he goes dying i was like ascend from this you bastard (laughs) (laughs) yes you don't listen to the actual episode do you alan well, you haven't put it out yet. You might want to listen to this one because you've just killed Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <that> indifference. <laughs> no, this story would be very different. What happened there was my brain said half Michael Shanks and half Daniel Jackson. There you go. You get Michael Jackson. <laughs> Please, Dave, never do that again. Ever. Okay. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> But could you see me moonwalking as I said that? Fortunately, no. This is not on Google Talks. So that was... Orpheus. Uh, thank you. Come try ya! Revision. Where uh, definite nods and revisions, I think, with the mind control, I believe a very similar episode in, as I commented at the time, I think DS9 and other tracks. 
but also, I suppose, to, would you call it a trope? Oh, absolutely. The the trope of a sentient or computer-organizing overlord that defines a society or defines a reality, that is most definitely Star Trek. Specific details are eluding me, but yeah, I would definitely categorize that. This has been done fairly well in this particular episode. It got one vote. Did it? Wow. You can almost say this has been done before and this will be done again. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and really, I mean, when you look at science fiction, the stuff that stands out, the stuff that really makes people take up and notice is not the fact that they didn't use tropes, but that they used them in a unique way or combined them in a way that was unexpected and awesome. I mean, the whole purpose of a trope is to point to something in the collective consciousness or, or the awareness of the audience that everybody can relate to that immediately has a lot of emotional and story baggage that just goes, yes, I know what you're talking about. And then I think it's the job of the writer to be subversive at that point and say, okay, now that we've established that baggage, let's turn it on its ear and give you a whole different perspective on what you thought this was all about. Well, I'm not sure I can follow that. <laughs> I do a writer's podcast, so so I'm always looking at things from the storytelling perspective of things. So that's, get used to it. That's going to happen again before we're done tonight. <laughs> and I say that there is only one way to follow that, and that is Christopher Heyerdahl. This is his first appearance on the uh, franchise. He turns up again in uh, Stargate Atlantis, crosses over into Sanctuary, probably one of the most enjoyable actors to watch on television at the moment. I saw him in a recent True Blood as an interrogator. Yes, and Hell on Wheels. No, sorry, there is only one Hell on Wheels, and that is Hellboy on Wheels, a.k.a. Sons of Anarchy. It's Hellboy and a frickin' Harley. Give me a reason not to watch it. We've discussed whether or not that got a vote. Got one vote. Come try ya! Lifeboat, a.k.a. the Daniel Jackson wants an Emmy episode. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, all he got was the Leo Award for Best Performance. Well, it's still better than a slap in the face, isn't it? Absolutely. Recognition, give it. Lifeboat, a crash starship called the Stromos, or Stromos. Nod to Alien there. Not Stromos, isn't it? We can't think of a name for the ship. Oh, I know, knock the syllable off. Stromos, make it work. Yeah, nobody will notice. <laughs> <laughs> so many bad things have been perpetuated on that premise. <laughs> yeah, True. deeply underestimating the power of fandom to find everything wrong, <laughs> including whether your tie was hitched to the right or to the left from one scene to the next. Great delight in undermining people's comprehension of the world, don't you, Alan? My I mean, you're going to kick the legs out from under your comfy little perception of the world. Here's what's really going on. Or better yet, I don't know what's going on, but neither do you now. <laughs> this was the episode where, where Michael was like acting like four different people, right? Eleven. Eleven. Memory is clearly gapped. Wow. Basically, the actor in an empty room under a spotlight. It really put the uh, focus on him. And Terrell Roffrey, of course. Good episode for Janet as well. Written by Brad Wright, directed by Peter DeLuise. It got 10 votes. Plus an honourable mention from Angela on Twitter, who wanted to vote for more than one episode, but I wouldn't let her, so she had to pick one and (laughs) gave this one an honourable mention because of Michael Shank. Did it win? No, it didn't win. Are you going to say how many votes we got in total? Or are you going to leave that for the end? We got 75 votes. Whoa! which is the most we've had for any poll. And considering the poll's been running while the Gatecast website has been doing walkies. <laughs> it only went walkies on Friday. Doing walkies. That's awesome. Making a note. 
and we haven't had an iTunes listing at all. <laughs> I spent four days of Dragon Con promoting the crap out of it. Everyone I spoke to, I said, go to this website, Dismare Podcast. Our iTunes is currently broken. Go to the website. Apparently, people really dug this episode. Why is that, do you think? Michael Shanks. Is it really? Is that all it is? I think it is. Yeah. It doesn't really have impact on any other part of the arc of the season. It's a showcase for, look how well I can act. <laughs> doesn't necessarily impact the storyline dramatically. It's just, it's almost like, it's almost like fan fiction of the main storyline. It's almost as if Michael Shanks wrote the episode of In Dolph. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, of course, but <laughs> he does in all this. Yep. Excellent. So 10 votes. That's our highest vote so far. Yeah. So far it is, yes. I was tempted to vote for it, but I didn't. Okay, then. Did you? No, I didn't. If I only had one vote, it would it would have, would have been a tough call. I probably wouldn't vote for an episode that isn't a part of the continuity just because I like the broader arc. I like things building and building, and when you conclude satisfyingly, that usually deserves nod and a vote. So I can see why I got an honorable mention. I can see why I got so much attention. You only have to look on Twitter and you realize just how many fans Michael Shanks has. To be honest, him and Amanda Tapping are probably neck and neck for obsession. Sure. He doesn't sputter or spitter, I think it's called. It's spam on Twitter. If it's not called <laughs> that, it bloody well should be. <laughs> Michael tweets actually rarely, so to kind of phrase what's seldom is wonderful. Come try ya! Moving on to Enemy Mine, which, if nothing else, is a title with a well-known science fiction movie. Yes, indeed. With one of the Quaid boys and Lou Gossett Jr. as an alien, a pregnant alien. But that's not what this story is about. <laughs> no, it's about Shaka. Shaka. <laughs> another episode this season that's written and directed by Peter DeLuise. We're on a mining, a mining planet. We're looking for Naquida. Uh, no, not Naquida. We're looking for Trit- Tritonin, aren't we? Or is it Trinium? Trinium. The ultra hard distance. That's right, to build another Prometheus. Can blow it up again. Well, they haven't blown this one up yet. Stop getting ahead of things. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> we need the Prometheus for the season finale. Ah. So we can't blow it up yet. Yes, the American military are on an alien planet doing a little surveying and they discover a huge load of triton- tr- uh, trinium. <laughs> and the only problem is there are natives there. What to do? What to do? Well, in the best tradition of colonialism... Shoot him. <laughs> it worked for the British, it worked for the Dutch and the Spanish and the Portuguese, and the Americans, it pretty much most of the Western world. Oh, we don't have a very good history, do we? Speak for yourselves. <laughs> I think we are the feagles of Europe, you know, drinking, stealing and fighting. <laughs> Keep it local. A couple of noticeable guest stars in this episode. Michael Rooker, playing a badass, a bit of a, not a racist... I don't really know how to describe him. Argumentative. I would describe him as the role taken by the general and avatar. Yeah. He's got his orders. He's going to do the job regardless of what's in his way. Yep. Not very welcoming to Chaka when Daniel brings him along. No, because he sees him as a non-sentient beast. Yes. I suppose it is not even subtle analogy of man's inhumanity to man, even though in this case it's not a man. It's very interesting, though. They wrap the episode up with Rooker himself getting down on his knees and just paying, not homage, but respect to Chaka and the natives of this planet. Because Daniel points out that's all they want. They don't want anything from you. Show the alpha respect and he'll talk to you as an equal. That's a very military point of view. We also get first appearance by Caven Smith, Major Lorne, another fan favourite. Quote from this episode, when Daniel sees that all these artefacts have been moved around and chucked willy-nilly, Jack turns to him and goes, Daniel... Go to your happy place. <laughs> it's always nice to see Daniel getting upset about what many would consider trivial things. 
that's just what many would consider trivial. It's not necessarily a trivial thing. Any votes for this? Just the one vote. That weren't yeah, me I, either. Anytime we trot out the, we need resources, but there's an indigenous culture here, and what do we do about that? I wince. I thought they did a good job with the treatment of the story in this episode. It wasn't a, a constant rollout of the metaphor of the Americans and the Indians and, and every other instance of a technologically advanced race exerting its will upon uh, a perhaps less advanced culture. But, man, not my thing. Come try ya! Episode 8, Space Race. Written by Damien Kindler, directed by Andy Makita. Sam gets an invite to go uh, on a, well, space race by the captain of the Severus, who we met in the episode Forsaken. But played by a different actor. Under all the prosthetics, it's a different actor. <laughs> Funnily enough, he does look different as well. It just goes to show how much the modern prosthetics rely on building on the actor's face to get the facial movement and all the mannerisms right. They're no longer just a big, heavy-set mask that they wear. Yeah, yeah. Did this one get any votes? This got five votes. One of which yeah. was mine. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> what did you, I liked what did this you... one. It, it was a fun episode. It was our format. It focused on Amanda Tapping, and frankly, we need more focus on Amanda Tapping, admittedly, with more cleavage and less clothing, but still... Oh, gosh. <laughs> he was given out to me about for going down this particular route. I, th- I think I'd rather totally demented on Sunday. <laughs> be, be that as it may, she is. It's a focus on Amanda. That cannot be a bad thing. It's a bit of crack, and it did remind me of, uh, I suppose, other episodes we've seen in other genres. Yes, very much so. But and, and but a, a, a big departure, I think, from the type of episode that you normally saw on Stargate 1. The whole modality of race and the various subterfuges that are going on woven in and among that very cool and very urgent story foundation. This was a great episode. I, I really enjoyed the departure from the main storyline and the opportunity to really just have a little put the pedal to the metal. I mean, everybody loves Fast and Furious and, and, and a good race. This one had all the, the wonderful last minute stuff that made it a good story. I enjoyed this one immensely. Very CGI-heavy episode, which did pay off. That's one thing the franchise does well is its special effects and visual effects. It did look a nice episode. Lots of pretty spaceships in it. Yes, Mike does like his pretty spaceships. Let's say a couple of names in it. Well, there's actually one name, Peter Calamus, who played one of the uh, telecasters. He went on to play Brody in Stargate Universe. And the receptionist was played by Hilary Cooper, Robsy Cooper's missus. Peter Clemens was also at the Stargate charity auction and at the was supposed to be at the second Stargate panel as well as the first one, but he apparently took the panel at its word and turned it. He was actually, no, he was hung over and wearing shades. <laughs> the Gatecast follows him on Twitter and he was posting all sorts of pictures from the dressing up in his uh, Star Wars costumes and all sorts. He dashed back at half time from the game down the road, having shouted at his football team to do the auction. <laughs> He's also a stand-up comedian. He actually does that, not full-time, but when he's not acting. He did mention the fact that he thought, since he never actually goes out with anyone here, he remembers turning it about halfway through season two to one of the other guys that finally hooked up and said, is my character gay? Because he never <laughs> seems to get any. But we'll cover that in detail in SGU, which at our current rate of recording should be sometime around the end of the decade. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Look on the bright side. By the time we get to Stargate Universe, there might actually have been more seasons of it. Oh, you are an optimist. Wow. And you call me cynical. And <laughs> I know, I know. Come try ya! 
Okay, and subject to cinema and movies generally, and uh, the fact that we mentioned Joss Whedon earlier, Avenger 2.0, even though we didn't have an Avenger (laughs) 1.0. Written by Joe and Paul, directed by Martin Wood. The Return of Felger, played by Patrick McKenna. Well, I won't say he's unlucky, he's enthusiastic. He is that. But not a very good scientist. He tries hard. He's he's trying, he's very, very trying. Yes, he's he's built a plasma cannon. (laughs) And plugged it into the mains, and then was surprised when it blew up. <laughs> it didn't blow up, it just shorted out. We'll talk about someone, as we said extensively during our coverage of the episode, how some people can completely oblivious to the fact that someone else fancies them. Always assistant Chloe. Because they have their own obsession, and they're so focused on the person they're obsessed with, they don't notice the fact that another person likes them. It all worked out in the end, off camera. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, did Chloe do the trope where she takes off the glasses and lets the hair down and she suddenly becomes a lot more attractive? Metaphorically, there was that moment when he suddenly went, duh, but... She asserted herself. Exactly, exactly. The, the, the moment occurred, She did. it wasn't exactly blocked that way, but it happened. I'm sure it was blocked that way. <laughs> the physical event didn't occur, but the emotional equivalent did Avenger 2.0 got five votes in the poll. Wow. Okay. It's because of Felger. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, feel sympathy for an ident. I believe we have one or two actual lab geeks amongst our followers. <laughs> Anyone who worked in a lab or in the pharmaceutical region of things would probably vote for this. Yeah, I can see. I just They did this a couple of times, not often in the series, but people taking hideous, hideous risks with technology they don't understand. And it's like, oh my God, really? You're, you're going to mess with programming of the Stargates? Really? Are you sure about that? Oh my God. So that was, <laughs> that was one of those, this is not going to end well moments. And yeah, it almost didn't. Well, I suppose you, you could say that if any ghoul is going to fiddle with the programming in the Stargates, it's going to be Ball, because Ball is just your fun-loving ghoul. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure Cliff Simon had great fun playing with him. Sure. Who wouldn't? It's one of those dream roles. Ball doesn't actually appear in this episode, does he, Mike? No. He's mentioned, no, he but he's not actually there. The gate is on one of Ball's worlds, which unfortunately, when they go to fix it, is why they get ambushed by Jafar and Sam. Sam does a military mode. She, you know, gets a new gun because uh, they've run out of P90 shells, <laughs> so they have to build her her own gun. <laughs> you know, she holds the line well while Felger repairs his uh, wayward experiment. In fairness to Sam, she is actually prepared to give Felger a lot more slack than most people would, including General Hammond. Well, I think a lot of the time, a lot of Sam's experiments, we don't see the results of. She only brings the successful <laughs> ones to uh, the General's attention. A lot of things go on in her lab that nobody knows about. Perhaps from possibly Daniel. It's probably the <laughs> subject of some of the things that go on in her lab. But do you think when he was ascended, he was, he was peaking? No, I, I, th- I think if she's going to... I need to point this thing which might uh, improve your health or take 10 years off your life. Would you mind standing there? <laughs> That's probably why Dr. Lee always looks so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> How many votes did that get? You said five, did you? I said five. Come try ya! Birthright, written by Christopher Judge, directed by Peter West. For Jolene Blaylock. I'm sure he wrote it for himself with Jolene Blaylock in mind. <laughs> well, and it and it is a, a Jaffa-oriented story, so it makes... I mean, I can only imagine an actor who has done six-plus seasons 
in this role, studying the culture, you know, coming up with his own backstory. And as the, the mythology continues to evolve with layer upon layer of, of the Gua'uld and the Jaffa and that relationship, my God, you, your head's going to be exploding with alternatives and possibilities and things to explore. This episode was a great example of what can come from that kind of creative contemplation. This is great. Well said. <laughs> it's probably the first time we also see a very effective use of the staff weapon. Yeah. The first time we meet the female Jafar, they lay waste to the guys that were shooting at. I mean, you face that in battle, you're going to keep your head down. You're not going to be returning fire. They mowed something like in Predator when they got that chain gun out and just opened up on the jungle, felled trees left, right and centre. This is what they were yep. doing. And you think, why can't all the rest of the Jafar be that accurate and that devastating? Why? Because they'd probably kill every SG unit they came across. <laughs> That's right, because <laughs> they were written that way. Yeah. <laughs> it did remind me of the super soldiers. The rate of fire from presumably about 15 female Jaffa. But again, we see not dissimilarly the episode where the free Jaffa were being led by what turned out to be a ghouls. We see a certain degree of the almost ghoul-level arrogance and inflexibility in the Jaffa because she's like well no this is the way we're going to do it but you know it's a trap or a certain death I don't care we're going to do this anyway and we see uh, Teok's ability just casually sort of tossed aside I suppose in his lifespan a 10 year relationship is the equivalent of 3 months for you and me <laughs> oh come on his wife died a long time ago <laughs> that's right He's two really seasons not. tops <laughs> that's perfectly reasonable in human culture you're allowed to date after two seasons how long is the season in human culture? <laughs> well, it depends on t- if it's during the summer, it's probably three months. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a kind of a timey-wimey thing. We're not going to go there. That's that's a whole different vibe. <laughs> yeah, especially since it's been on for 70 minutes. <laughs> and at least took got some action in this. I thought that was good. Most of the is the ultimate straight man. All the lines that uh, RDA delivers just kind of just disappears. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Another reason to write your own stories, isn't it? <laughs> so how many words have I got in this script? Six. How many of them are the word indeed? Five. (laughs) Is there any kissing? We need more kissing in this show. Piece of trivia from this episode. Terrell and Kristen. Kristen was playing one of the children, the young women in the camp. They both appeared in Kyle XY together, playing mother and daughter. Jolene Blaylock from Enterprise. She played Ishtar, the love interest and the leader of this Jaffa rebellion from the system lord Moloch. Also Mala, Christine Adams. I think she was in Terra Nova. I'll check. I'll be watching it later. Unfortunately, it got no votes. No votes at all? I'm almost tempted to sign in just to vote, just just so this one gets at least one. <laughs> Holy crap. I thought this was a very cool exploration and a deepening of the Jaffa and the Gua'uld culture. I, I think it added depth and compassion to the universe at large. This should have gotten at least one vote. I'm going to lodge a complaint with the committee. This is... Unacceptable. We are the commission. Oh, well, expect a strongly worded email at some point. <laughs> Which we shall duly read out. Excellent. Of course, you could just record an MP3 and mail it to gatecastpodcast.gmail.com. <laughs> Excellent. Now, if you hear 30 seconds of uh, silence, that's me being speechless. That's something about this podcast is actually working still. Mike! <laughs> change, change is never easy, gentlemen. we got to roll with those punches. This will all pass with time, and then everything will be back to its smooth and pleasant way. Come try ya! Jack? Daniel? Are you you? Yeah, you. What? I like the yellow ones. Never mind. Time for a small intermission. The first piece of business, two very important upcoming birthdays for actors on Stargate. Both of these guys were born on the 27th of October, 
So join us in wishing Robert Picardo and Carmen Arzangiano a very happy birthday. On the podcast, we've had an exceptional response to our request for iTunes reviews, ratings. Many thanks to everyone who has already posted on their respective iTunes stores. And they are all entered into the prize draw for the signed Jason Momoa Ronan doll. We are going to leave the prize open for a couple of weeks, but we would love to get more ratings and reviews. It all helps to get the cast listed on the front search page for our genre and subject. One review worth mentioning is the very first we received from Boy Named Billy on the Canadian store. Many thanks for getting the ball rolling on our new listing, even before we waived a prize as incentive. On the news, Christopher Judge will be joining Bay Ling in the silent production of Age of the Hobbits. There is a trailer on YouTube and it's embedded on our website and Facebook Google Plus groups. Take a look, because as with most silent movies, they are a lot of fun, if viewed in the right way. We do have some voicemail from Brad, one of our listeners from Australia, about Season 7 in general. Many thanks, Brad, for taking up the challenge of sending in your thoughts. It's very much appreciated. Hi, guys. Brad from Barnawoff, Victoria, Australia here. Just thought I'd chime in on Series 7 of Stargate SG1. Great series overall. Mid-season 2, Parter and Grace were weak episodes in my mind. If they'd brought Heroes 1 and 2 down to the mid-season 2, Parter, I thought that would have been a good move. But some great episodes, Homecoming, Fallen, good to see Jackson back. Space Race, another good one, good visuals. Lifeboat, probably Daniel's, Michael Shanks' best acting for the series in my opinion. And it finishes with Lost City 1 and 2, which were great episodes. So yeah, they're my thoughts on Series 7. Thank you, bye. Thanks for that, Brad. And now we have a few posts from the Facebook group on last week's Season 7 finale, as well as the iTunes promotion. On the iTunes front... Dan kicked us off. I wrote a new review in iTunes as well, guys. I don't think it's posted yet, but should soon. I replied, just checked to US iTunes, and yep, it's been posted. Cheers, Dan. He says, honestly, I had no idea about the contest, and I said we didn't even mention it until yesterday. Also, alas, Daniel loses the honour of being our first. Boy named Billy posted a review in the Canadian store the week before. I really checked the store, which is why it's important just to poke us, so to speak. Also, thanks to Kevin for being the first UK reviewer. And a big cheer for Brad, who is our first reviewer from Australia. John D. Riley III. Just posted one in the US, you guys. are oh, great, it should... Thanks, John. Michael Jacobs chimed in. What's iTunes? He was being a little sarcastic, and which I didn't catch on to. <laughs> Apologies for that. And then Thomas said he posted a review as well. Cheers, mate. On the subject of Lost City Part 2. Jeff posted, I updated my podcast minutes before you must have uploaded this episode. Must resync my podcast. I replied it was a little later than usual. I'd gotten used to a last-minute editing on Friday night, but working this Saturday morning meant an early bedtime. Luke Tullock replied, What a way to end an era in SG-1. Things will never be the same. Also, I like the way they use SGA music at the end. Yes, change is already afoot in the seventh season, bore fruit in the eighth, and the music after the fact did kind of stand out. Brad posted... Oh my god, you didn't like Thor? Not knowing about any of those characters, I had no investment in the movies. Loved Iron Man, Captain America, and surprisingly Thor as well. Even took my wife to see it, and she liked it as well. Still didn't like the new Hulk. Don't see how they can do it right. I replied, going to have to check the edit. It sounded like one of us didn't like Thor in either his SG or Marvel guys. Jeff replied, yep, it was you. You ended up sounding rather down on almost all the Avenger-related movies, with the exception, I think, of the first Iron Man. Thomas chimed in, yes I heard that too, I love Thor and can't wait for the second one. I replied, hmm, Iron Man 2 I wasn't impressed with, but the rest have been excellent. Miffed the UK release of Avengers didn't have the commentary, but that's been sorted thanks to a friend. 
Brad posted, yeah, I'm, I am too, wasn't that good. Hook was worse. Have you seen the new IM3 trailer? I replied, yes, very dark and ominous. Thanks for all the feedback, especially email and voicemails. Keep the Facebook and Google Plus groups going. Twitter, as per usual, has been busy with day-to-day stuff. If you have any news, birthdays, funny pictures, any links or anything like that, feel free to post them in any of our portals. Share the Stargate goodness. If you do want to get in touch with us, our email address is gatecastpodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is gatecast.co.uk. And you can do a search for Gatecast on Google+, Facebook and iTunes. Don't forget those reviews, folks. And finally, on Twitter, we are The Gatecast, which is one word. And now for this week's promo from the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. This is Robert Picardo, the holographic doctor from Star Trek Voyager. And Richard Woolsey from Stargate Atlantis. This is Vanessa Angel. This is Maris Rose. This is Christopher Heyerdahl. This is Clifton Collins Jr. This is Mally from Dollhouse. This is Alistair. And you're, you're just listening to the sweet and tasty sounds of the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Live long and prosper. Did I fall asleep? For a little while. I got a bad feeling about this. There is no spoon. Hello, I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin, and we are the hosts of the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. We're just ordinary sci-fi fanboys. In each show, we bring you the latest news from the sci-fi movie and television universe, along with our commentary on it. We review the shows and movies that we're watching. We bring you interviews with Stargate, Dollhouse, Star Trek cast members, and many more notables. And test your geek cred with the trivia that all sci-fi addicts should know. We also occasionally give things away. If you are a lover of all things sci-fi, then come dine with us as we host the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. You can find us on iTunes. Or on our website at sci-fi-diner.com. That would do for now. Let's get back to the Season 7 wrap-up show. Episode 11, Evolution Part 1. Part 1 and the comments at the time. Finally, it only took them seven seasons to get a Part 1, which was followed by a Part 2 with the same title. <laughs> this is the episode we meet Anubis's super soldiers, which is basically Dan Payne in the black Holding suit. His breath. <laughs> that was more for Day's benefit than anything else. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tilk and Braytac think they go for a meeting with First Prime and discover a load of dead bodies with one survivor who then gets killed by this... Mysterious black-clad figure. Should I mention at this point the fact that these mysterious black-clad figures and Braytac clearly have some sort of agreement? <laughs> they kill everyone else, and they see Braytac and they go, nah. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time. He's old and worthless. Well, you keep saying it, you know. Still here. Cracky. <laughs> they discover that the super soldier, creation of Anubis, is using some sort of sarcophagus-based energy to actually give life to something that was previously dead. It's kind of a little history lesson uh, of the sarcophagus, which was based on a system lord, Telchak, which he probably stole from the ancients when you come to think about it. Daniel, of course, luckily discovers that Telchak had temples in South America, so off he goes, along with Dr. Lee, to Honduras. So this isn't down... Let me back up that sentence and start again. I'm assuming this isn't downtown Vancouver, doubling for Honduras. <laughs> Not quite downtown, on the outskirts. I think there's a part, Toronto, somewhere that looks a lot like the jungles of Honduras. I could be wrong. They can always bring in a few potted plants. Absolutely. Some leafy palms, maybe a, maybe a tree. Boom. 
Frankly, if you've got leaves on your palm, be a medical practitioner. Ah, I'm not going where that led me to. I'm going restraint. Restraint for everything? Yeah, really. Aww. And Daniel was, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I watched this one, but Daniel was following notes from, like, his father or something on this one. His grandfather. Nicholas Ballard. Right. Yeah, so he'd been looking for the Fountain of Youth. They suppose that the myth and the yeah, device created by Telchat were one and the same. Okay, right. That's always a fun trope when they start blending ancient Earth mythology with ancient Gould technology or ancient Asgard technology. Those are always fun. I enjoy, hey, this is what's really going on with the Fountain of Youth. Those are fun. And let's not forget, poor Dr. Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He cracked like a cheap egg. <laughs> he was one of those characters you were always glad to see in the episode. He was like that, like you raised up earlier, Alan, the relevance of the, the bumbling geek, the brilliant scientist who just really has so much going on upstairs, but it never seems to make it plainly out into the world. And so he's bumbling, he's flustered, and seeing him out in the field, and I thought they played up the okay. comedy in that I, well. I can repeat this at the time, but by all accounts, that's David Hewlett in real life. Oh, really? <laughs> He's really not. Jason Moe was on about this as well. And it, it, where they're out in the jungle and David's like, it's nature and it's outside and it's not air conditioned and I don't like it. And he, he was sort of halfway up a tree in a harness and he was really hating every minute of it. And the shot took about two hours and he was like, oh God, no, get me back inside to my comfort. <laughs> How many votes did this episode get? None. None. That's too bad. I won't be lodging a complaint though. I can... <laughs> I'd say a lot of the two characters got no votes because people couldn't decide which part they wanted to vote for. And That's it, a good point. It, it, if we'd combined them into single episodes, they might have gotten more. Right. Let's go on to part two. Cause that yeah, because was... I preferred part two. Evolution part two got one vote. It got one vote? So this was covert ops in the jungles of Honduras, that episode, right? We have what I call the fun version of Mainborn. <laughs> there you go. I like this character. Agent Burke, played by Enrico Coliantonio. That was bloody well done. Well done, <laughs> sir. I wouldn't have tackled that name. That was brilliant. Sometimes you just wish there was a place where the actor himself actually said his name, so you knew if you were doing it right or not. <laughs> I'm sure he's appeared in the panel. Story by Damien Kinder and Peter DeLuise. The screenplay written by Peter DeLuise. The episode directed by Peter DeLuise. Deloise heavily involved. And there were zombies. Well, a zombie. <laughs> Maybe that's all you need. That's right. Especially when he's carrying an AK-47. As Burke said, that's a total win. Burke comes out with the grade line. <laughs> Boom, you know. Then yeah, <laughs> just turns to Jack. Huge grin on his face. You guys are into some crazy crap, man. <laughs> and it is a damn shame they didn't get that character back again, even though they actually said they wanted to. Was it the classic ground shot of just looking up at the legs and then watching the legs fall over as we see everybody's stunned face in the distance? <laughs> just a pair of smoking That's right. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes, that, that's a Pratchett trope. Well, there were a lot of explosions in this episode, wasn't there? Didn't Wasn't Tilt and Sam involved in something? Oh, yeah. Jacob actually wore the captured super soldier suit. That's right, yes. Went to the Tartarus, which was the home world of the super soldiers. Even the fact that uh, Jacob is a good six inches shorter than Dan Payne. The suit fits him perfectly. <laughs> it had elevator heels. It had special compensators. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of thinking, you might have more than one of these, and then you see the sort of slow pan across. And we are so screwed. <laughs> we do find out that uh, Anubis has a gold queen laying eggs for him. Presumably not under duress. The fact that she's stripping out all the material that gives these new symbiotes their own identity. 
you can't really force a queen to do that. She chooses to do that, as we saw in, uh, oh, I can't remember the race of people who had a, a Geria Tok'ra queen. The Tritonin kept mixing up with the other stuff. Tritium. Tritium? I don't think the emphasis was on the first syllable. I thought it was interesting that they started mixing their uh, mythologies with this one, and the, the planet's name was Tartarus, which is not an Egyptian hell, but rather a Greek hell, Greek or Roman. You just know that one of the producers or the writers got a big bumper book of mythology for Christmas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Bullfinch's mythology. Quick, turn to the page for hells. We need a good uh, hell g- name. Given that he's a producer, it's probably the Ladyboard book of mythology. <laughs> Speaking of producers, I have a joke that I have to share with you. Just, just as a quick side deterrent here. Apparently a writer and a producer are walking through the park desert they're dying of thirst, and they see in the distance uh, an oasis, and they stagger towards it. In the middle of this oasis is a gorgeous pool of sweet, clear water, and the writer falls to his knees and begins to drink greedily of this wonderful, wonderful water, and he hears this splashing sound next to him, and he sees the producer pissing into the pond. My God, man, what are you doing? And the producer says, I'm making it better. <laughs> <laughs> That seemed like an appropriate time for that joke, so there we go. Who's peeing in the Stargate pond? Well, I, I'm not uh, savvy enough into the production staff and certainly want to give offense. Whoever came up with Tartarus for the name of the land of the dead or the undead, right there, him. Whoever that was, I accuse you, sir, are not true to the mythology. That's all I'm saying. Quick shout-out to Kevin, who just tweeted us. Good luck, always looking forward to the wrap-up shows. Ah, yes. I didn't tweet you about this. I did. I hope we're fulfilling expectations, Kevin. (laughs) Kevin. Kevin? K-A-V-I-N. Why I haven't referred to you much by name, and certainly not by your surname, because I know, and I said it to Mike off-air beforehand, I'm liable to pronounce it Robinson, and I'm sure it's happened to you. Oh, yes. Many, many times. And I answer to it, but it it is Robinson, with no N in the middle. A little warning, Alan. Don't look at the Gatecast Twitter feed. They're doing a Doctor Who update. Uh-oh. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so far it's OMG, 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 OMG. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't kill. Beep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I'd like to happen is Rory to have some silly pointless death and Amy to get naked, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it could be the other way around, though. <laughs> the other thing which Dave may not know, since we spun briefly in Doctor Who, in the first episode of Matt Smith... The girl who played Amy Pond as a young girl is actually Karen's cousin. Really? No, I didn't know that. First cousin, yes. Wow. And is Irish, which is why she doesn't sound Scottish, which Karen does. (laughs) Okay. So, next episode. (laughs) Come try ya! Race, yes, an appropriate uh, uh, name. In, in the same way that Lifeboat focused entirely on uh, Daniel, I think this one focuses entirely on Amanda Tapping. And had Space Race not have been fun, this was my second choice for a vote because it's it, all the Amanda we can take. <laughs> Written by Damien Kindler, directed by Peter West, set on board the Prometheus after it gets shanghaied by an alien starship, which we see once and never see again. And another alien happens to be a sentient gas cloud in the set that was Stargate. Not Star Trek, honestly. Not Star Trek. Really not. And you can always tell (laughs) when Deloise is not writing the story. Deloise has a very specific voice and a very specific story that he likes to tell. This was definitely not a Deloise story. Well, the beauty of this is that there was nowhere he could make his little cameo appearance. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Except as a hallucination. Yeah, a spacesuit floating outside (laughs) the ship or something. Yeah. 
So we couldn't do a Hitchcock. Exactly. I was going to no. say that's, that's a classic Hitchcockian trope. Finally returning the Prometheus to Earth using a borrowed Alkesh hyperdrive, which unfortunately overheats repeatedly, so they have to uh, jump about 50-odd light years, stop, then jump again, stop, then jump again. A bit like the uh, Wraith hive ships. Unfortunately, they stop in the backyard of an alien species. Fortunately for them, there's a, a nearby nebula. And you know how nebulas look very small because they are very big and far away. <laughs> this nebula was very close because they got there on what we would call impulse engines in about 30 <laughs> seconds. Amazing. It isn't it. Thank God for inertial dampeners. Every astronomy <laughs> geek in the audience has gone, what? Oh, man. <laughs> Which is why RDA isn't in this too much, because Jack O'Neill is an astronomy geek. Yeah, he, he would not be. He, would, he, would, he probably had words with the writers on this one. Not as many words as he had when the cause for the Prometheus being out there in the first place happened. <laughs> the reason Jack looks so ticked off in that earlier episode where the Prometheus was stolen is because Richard Dean Anderson was actually ticked off. <laughs> he was channeling his inner self, yes. It was, it was method acting. You've got this super secret facility with a highly expensive machine and it gets nicked by a film crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They talk about suspension of disbelief. <laughs> Grace got seven votes. Wow. Yeah, did well. I think uh, a lot of people like Amanda Tapping and the episodes she gets to uh, front. Yeah, this is a departure from the usual fare of, of the previous episodes. So I, I think is indicative of the, of the series is that they, they had a, a baseline storyline that they were rocking, but they were never bashful about saying, and we're going to derail this completely for an episode <laughs> or two and just play a little bit because it's fun. And I think that is one of the most endearing aspects of, of the series in general. Episode 14, Fallout, the return of Jonas Quinn. Strange that you should say that we just play and have fun because this episode was fun and Jack, I think, makes a huge impact for very few scenes. He's not actually in it that much. The episode was written by Corin Nemec, screenplay by Joe and Paul and directed by Martin Wood. It unfortunately did not get any votes. And the quote I picked from this was, well, that's what you get for dicking around. (laughs) <laughs> What's that quote from? It sounds like Jack. It does sound like Jack. I think it was when he was on the uh, little uh, communications panel. I prefer that I think Jack says something along the lines of, screw it, they're toast. <laughs> um, basically, you know what? To hell with it. Bye. This episode dealt with Bol exploring the uh, the Quadria deposits by using a spy, a shapely spy who wooed Jonas. And so gratuitous shots of her butt. I don't think this episode really worked very well as a return for Jonas Quinn, even though Corin wrote it. Perhaps there should have been more there. Maybe it was too close to the core. Maybe it was the fact that it seemed to come out of nowhere. You know, there was no build-up to Jonas coming back. He just kind of appeared. Corin was like, I can't get... Can I do another episode, please? Look, I've written it. Please put me in. Oh, go on. Well, and, and, you know, really, this is indicative of a trend in serial drama that's come about just in recent years in television is the notion that there is a continuity. That as, you know, in prior to, I would say... God, I guess the late 1990s, television always reset at the end of the episode and you didn't have these wonderful overarching storylines. And this is indicative of that, to have Jonas Quinn come back in and to reaffirm that there is stuff going on outside of the primary, wherever the camera is, there's still a universe out there. And I thought that was very cool. Chimera. Uh, The return of Osiris, a.k.a. Sarah Gardner. Yes, Pete. And amazingly enough... I think the only reason he survived is he actually did manage to sleep with her. <laughs> you get an extra life. Yeah, I got a, a, a plus one. 
we got to see uh, Amanda dress up in this episode, putting her party dress on, going dancing. And driving her own car. Yes, another Volvo. Not the classic Volvo, a more modern Volvo. Slice of real life. Written by Rob C. Cooper. Well, the story by Rob C. Cooper. Written by Damien Kindler and directed by Will Waring. Pete Shanahan, played by David Deloey. Yes, one of the Deloey's brothers. It got three votes. Again, I suspect because of Amanda Tapping. Michael Shanks got a little cuddle action there. But... Amanda Tapping could be the reason Sarah Garner didn't reappear. She might have been a bit jealous. You know? No, I'm sorry. I'm cute blonde on this show, you know? God, <laughs> you are just a lawsuit waiting to happen, Alan. Holy crap, man. Yeah, if, if, if we ever get Amanda on the show and she listens to a few, I think she might have some words. Yeah, they may be prefaced by a lawyer. Well, I can only imagine. I don't know. I, I hope someday to have the experience of being cast in a, in a successful fan-loved show so that I can experience whether or not I would actually listen to all of the fan casts that are spawned by it. I would imagine that around season two and three, they probably listened to a few, but around five or six, it was like, yeah, they're out there. That's cool. Moving on. I think you're safe for now. <laughs> Why? Because we're in season seven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come try ya! Another Amanda-centric episode, Death Knell. Sam and Jacob are on uh, the former beta site, which is now the alpha site, developing the super soldier weapon. Unfortunately, Anubis has found the location and he sends super soldiers to attack him and the self-destruct goes off, levels the base. All is a wasteland. The Jaffar don't like being told what to do by a bunch of earthlings. The Tok'ra don't like being told what to do by a bunch of earthlings. I remember this. Yes, yes, yes. This was great. This was... Ooh, things aren't good in paradise. That was this episode. Yes, it, it didn't quite work out well. Everybody was getting something what they wanted, but everybody were having to sacrifice something. Yeah. Also, the point that the writers said they wanted to remove every ally the Earth had for the big showdown. Yeah, yeah. It felt because, and I think this was the only real episode where they addressed this, which is which kind of bothered me because this mm-hmm. this kind of cultural tension should have been there all along, and there should have been bumps and roadblocks that prevented this kind of unnatural alliance. Well, especially when the Tok'ra and Jaffar had been mortal enemies for tens, yeah, tens of exactly, thousands of years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and a single episode where there were themes that could have been explored in here that I think would have resonated with the overall Stargate theme that they really could have done some work with. But they had other stories to tell, I understand that. But it felt rushed. It felt overly compartmentalized. That okay, everything's going to crap now, and look, we're all done. We're, we're done right now. We're setting up for the end game. Well, we even lost Jacob. Mm-hmm. His own people didn't even trust him. Right. You're too yep, human. Yep. It was not yeah. a good day. Sam Mike wasn't happy about that. The episode got one vote. There's a lot to be said for conflict and resolution. I think people yep. see Stargate as a fun, entertaining show, and they don't necessarily like episodes where it gets serious. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm glad that they do have those episodes where things do get hard, and the characters are challenged beyond how do we get out of this death trap. That's a nod to the creators and the and the writers. I think that's an important part of any fan and any story arc needs that. Come try ya. Brings us nicely on to the two-parter heroes. Indeed. Yes. I don't know if we can take these separately, just from a vote perspective, but it is, as much as any two-parter, I think far more than any two-parter, this feels like a single 90-minute episode. Yeah, very much so. We'll discuss it as one big episode, but for voting-wise, Heroes Part 1 got two votes. Heroes Part 2 got 12 votes. I would combine those. There's is is out in space and we got ships and then we got the prometheus which was badass and that was cool and the f-302s i loved the progression of that 
but everything was always big and grand and epic ships and explosions. And this two-parter was a wonderful reminder that there is a context in which all of this stuff is happening that's very close to home and very real. And I thought it did a good job of, of showcasing that. And having seen Sol Rubinek recently, yeah, I'm going to continue to name drop throughout this because I, I made a point of getting to as many Stargate panels as I could. And the fact <laughs> that I went to a Warehouse 13 panel, having seen Sol Rubinek, that is the reporter, the attitude, the approach, the way he is on screen in both this and Warehouse 13 is, from what I can see from the brief hour I spent in his uh, company. You know, I didn't cop him when I saw him initially because it's been so long from when this was shown to when I started watching Warehouse 13 that I didn't realize even when we were covering it, it was the same act. Yeah, I can see that. He, ha- I mean, given the time differential and the character differential, you can see that. He's fabulous. I love him in Warehouse 13, and I loved him in this episode. I think he pretty much stole the show in this episode. His monologues were inspiring in some Very cases. Much so. Even the story about the uh, Vietnam correspondent. It was fiction. Probably there was a lot of truth in reality with other people, but you bought it. Like in his monologues of Jeff Daniels' monologues in the newsroom. Yeah, I can see that. Where Jim Beefer tweeted about recently, he said he watched all 10 episodes in two days. (laughs) (laughs) And there's that utter commitment that Saul brings to every role that he does. And it's not like an intensity. It's not overacting. It's an utter conviction. It's an authenticity. You buy whatever role he's chosen to commit himself to. I agree, Mike. It was, he did, I think he did steal the show just because of that deaf portrayal of the character. Poor Terrell. Oh, yeah. It's one hell of a way to go out of a series. <laughs> when we thought vicious manipulating bastards made us think it was Jack. Point, well, maybe, okay, this is episode 17, 18. Maybe when they were writing this, they got notification that they weren't getting season nine. So they decided to kill off Jack. Sure, there's always that question mark that gets raised as you move towards the end of a season. It's like, man, are they, are they wrapping up? Is this the end? That creates great tension among the fans, and they obviously exploited it very nicely in the storyline here. And a beautifully touching, just the list of names of people that Terrell had saved, and I was thinking, ah, oh, bless. <laughs> <laughs> and that was from Tilk as well. It's also the first appearance of Richard Woolsey, played by Robert Picardo. Ah, uh, Yes. Quick guest appearance by Adam Baldwin, Colonel Dixon. He was battling the Imperial droid. Sorry, I mean the Gould <laughs> probe. Now, that was my spot. But go on. <laughs> it, it was good enough to repeat, Alan. Good enough to repeat. <laughs> Cracking two-parter. It really was. Yep. Come try ya! A resurrection. Strangely appropriate title, given the fact that somebody died in the previous episode. Indeed. <laughs> Written by Michael Shanks. Directed by Amanda Tapping. It got a single vote. Maybe because it was a disturbing episode, but wasn't the name the actor in question, but didn't he play Slimy well? Dr. Keffler. Not quite as the matter of Slime in uh, Stargate, which is clearly Ron Cox. Didn't he do well? He was a creep show. Played by Brad Greenquist. Yes. As I recall, I was confusing because uh, Mike was saying, oh, yes, he's playing European. And I said, as gay? <laughs> is this how Americans be Europeans? All Europeans are gay. Well, it was kind of Euro trash, you know, that sort of stereotype. Right. There was a very faint hint of Nazi in the background there. Oh, yeah. More so the Gorbals, I think, than anything else, especially given in line with the genetic experiments. Very much so. A human gold hybrid, Anna Stroke Sekhmet, who was the companion of Ra, and who got one of Ra's little weapons of mass destruction ticking away mm-hmm. in the basement, which Dr. Lee and Tilk are diffusing. With hilarity. <laughs> it's wonderful. Even in the darkest episode, you have the humour. It reminds me of Supernatural in that way, which is a, you have a lot of darkness, but you still have humour in there. 
it sort of lightly yeah. veined through in a in a sort of raspberry ripple versus vanilla on the ice cream. Well, you needed the humour because this was a dark episode. Very. Right until the end where she gets a vengeance and then she takes her own life. Yeah. Pretty brutal. Yeah. And this is one of those episodes you were referring to, Alan, where they did get dark and serious and asked some very important questions, some disturbing questions. Indeed. But getting Dr. Lee out of, not only out of the, the lab, but putting him side by side with Tilk, a <laughs> masterstroke a part of the writers. Oh my God. Tilk who has no no patience for, for the nicety and the pleasantries upon mm-hmm. which Dr. Lee relies exclusively on because that's all he's got. It's a socialization tool. He's carefully assembled to interact with people. Yes, exactly. In the end, I mean, again, there's that wonderful feeling of uh, we, we, we've not only survived this, but we have a new understanding of each other, which I thought was a, a nice quality to end with. Come try ya! On the subject of socialization toolkit, segues me nicely into someone who could do with one. Ronnie Cox in inauguration and wonderful President Hayes, played by, he waits for Mike to fill him in. William Devane. <laughs> Considering this is a money-saving episode, this is exactly what it's for. They wanted the money for the special effects for the finale, so they brought along this episode, which the story was actually thought of about three or four years ago. Sooner or later, they'd have a new president, he'd have to be briefed, and this is what we got. Brilliant. It is a fantastic clip show. Yes. It's in such a strong season, Yep. it gets kind of overshadowed. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right, Mike. I think, as a fan, I wanted this episode, you know, three seasons ago, or or, or two seasons ago at least. But yeah. to have it in this season, which was filled with so much, you're right, it was overshadowed. A wonderful turn from both the I want to have a shower after watching them on screen, Ronnie Cox, and <laughs> nicely highlighted for Robert Picardo. Yes, yes. I never get tired of watching Picardo do his thing, whether it was in Star Trek or Stargates. He brings such a fussy primness to whatever he does, whatever scenario you put him in. Which is why in Voyager you see him singing opera and not country. Yes, exactly, because he would not pull off country. Country would not, his mouth would rot away if he tried to sing, you know, a Faith Hill song or something. Oh, my God. The fact that you know who Faith Hill is is slightly disturbing. I only know from song pop. I live in Nashville. I cannot help but know who Faith Hill is. I avert my eyes and still the blinding country comes through. I, I can't help it. Unfortunately, the episode did not get any votes. Really? It's very, it did deserve some votes for this because the cast is brilliant. Everybody in it is fantastic. It's probably the one clip show I would watch again yes. and again. Stargate does clip shows that you want to see. Some of them. But not all I of them. disagree. The Barber one is one of my personal favourites. The Barber clip show is my view from the gallery for Stargate. Yeah, but for Citizens Joe, you've also got, was it Corai, where Tilt was on trial? Hmm. That was a flashback episode. You get clip shows which are there solely to save money. And then you got this clip show which is there to save money, but it's done with style. Indeed. Yeah, very much so. Which leads on... Come try ya! Lost City, parts one and two. Which yes. was a slightly awkward recording because the UK DVD just edited the whole thing into one big chunk and left nothing else on the disc. Bless them. Both episodes are written by Brad Wright, directed by... Uh, no, they're not. They're written by Brad Wright and Rob C. Cooper, directed by Martin Wood. Lost City Part 1 got four votes. Lost City Part 2, which is the episode I voted for, 
got 17. Only vote once, Mike. I only voted one. Good man. 16 other people <laughs> voted with me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, think I, found, I think our listeners might be suspicious of the fact that the episode you voted for won. That either this... <laughs> what, do we have to go back every year to see if the one I voted for won? <laughs> Request via email, gatecastpodcast at gmail.com. That bit that works SG-1 go to a planet to find another repository of knowledge left by the uh, ancients. Anubis is uh, on his way, so they have a big battle sequence mm-hmm. there. We get introduced to Elizabeth Weir, played by Jessica Steen. At this point. Yes, and she's given the job of commanding the SGC as the general is, well, he's not retired, he's replaced. Right. As I believe I'm going to say when she's introduced in season eight, Elizabeth, you look different. Did you change your hair? <laughs> <laughs> But a, a wonderful piece of logic from uh, Jack explaining why he has to be the one to get his head grabbed again. What was that? Remind me. Essentially, he says that if Daniel does it, who's going to be around to translate him? And he says to him, not entirely, not a subtle nods to his own feelings for uh, Sam that she's a treasure and the program can't do without her. There you go. So, uh, a national treasure. It, it won't work on Teok because it's Jafar, so... Jack decides to stick the barrel in the gun of his mouth, effectively. I mean, that, that's the sacrifice, the falling on the sword for the friends, for the, for the greater good. That's why Jack is awesome. Yes. And we do get a fantastic scene back at his place over the weekend where he's gone just to be alone. And, oh, look, I just happen to be driving by. Come on in, Sam. Oh, look, we just happen to be driving by. Come in, Tilton Daniel. <laughs> Donuts. Amanda's explanation of why she's there defines an almost adolescent level of awkward. <laughs> she can't even admit to herself that she's come there to see him. And then, of course, Hammond turns up. Daddy, the father figure, <laughs> the chaperone. Yes. <laughs> and he straight out asks us for a beer. <laughs> We've only got Guinness, and I'll do. <laughs> Guinness is beer. Guinness is food. <laughs> it is. Okay. Yeah. Conscious of Dave's hard stop approaching in about three and a half minutes. Part two, where they basically just spent the entire season's budget on about ten minute battle <laughs> sequence. And you see every penny on the screen. Whatever money they saved, whatever money they got, brilliant. This episode, this for a season finale, I was so ready for a cliffhanger. And and yes, Jack does end up encased in carbonite. I'm sorry, not carbonite, crystal. <laughs> Uh, but but you know he's in stasis and I got it and there's oh man what's gonna happen to him but just in terms of the story the payoff at the end the oh my god it's Antarctica holy crap and we get down and now and all of the promise and hope of dude we've got a freaking weapon on our planet we can finally kick some butt the whole story and the wrapping up of the, all of the hardships that they went through one of the most satisfying series finales I have ever experienced in the entire arc of Stargate. This was fabulous. Right up to the point where Daniel says, oh, this isn't Atlantis. Yeah. But that, <laughs> I, <laughs> what? Yeah, Seriously, Black said it went out. Seriously, Dave, don't, don't sit on the fence. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, Mike, I, I did. I blocked that bit out. But as soon as you said it, it's like, oh, right, crap. There was that. But yeah, the heck with it. The, 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 I, th- I think, that, no, this isn't Atlantis because we've gotten approval and budget for a full-on <laughs> series. So let's do that instead. <laughs> Good point. Excellent. That was the plan. Atlantis was going to be the new series and SG-1 was going to finish with feature. Mm-hmm. Right. But the money was there to make an eighth season. Season eight. And then with season nine and ten, they made Farscape SG-1. 
And they did the wonderful callback with the uh, new leader of SG-1 being uh, one of the x 2 pilots <laughs> who defended the Prometheus. That's right. Which we will address in time. Wedge from, from Star Wars finally gets promoted. Yes, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fabulous. That was a way to finish a series. Yeah, that they didn't dangle it, that they gave us sufficient wrap-up that we could turn off the TV and go, ah, rather than already biting our nails for what's going to happen, how did it end? <laughs> So it's like, thank you, writers of Stargate, for not putting us on the hook for an entire year. That was awesome. A couple of little quotes. The first one in part one where Jack was doing his crossword. Sam is going, the clue for seven down is celestial body. And he wrote Uma Thurman. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I remember that. that was brilliant. That interaction with Daniel where uh, he asked about the different types of quark and Daniel says, strange, and Jack gets all starky. <laughs> And we get probably one of the greatest lines in the series when the president is facing down a holographic Anubis. He's ranting away and just basically draws a line, never going to happen, then turns to his aide and goes, too much. (laughs) (laughs) Just the right amount of craziness. The other thing that saddened me, and in a good way about this, was, was the knowledge that Hammond was being relieved of command. That moment when Hammond had been such an anchoring foundational part of the entire series that i didn't tear up but there was sort of a oh no don't don't go father hammond <laughs> we need you he's like the ben cartwright yes, exactly <laughs> exactly yeah and really i mean really he was he was and and whether they intended that or not this this paternal strong folksy down earth man knowing that that he was maybe not out of the series but certainly being phased out of that central role there was there was a genuine moment of i'm gonna miss you sir when when that scene played out it's like oh but it's gotta happen change comes it was worth it though he he got into space he went into battle you know ramming speed boom 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 (laughs) well it was more bright house comment has hammond of texas fallen in battle (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love that hammond of texas and he always delivered that line with such conviction even though the words in every listener's head go Hammond of Texas really <laughs> but Braytag pulls it off it was such an honorific you bought it it's like master Braytag isn't it yes very much so very much so puts a lot of emphasis on names you know we won't emphasize the fact that master Braytag could be very easily mispronounced <laughs> no we won't you might but we wouldn't yes yeah, I'm thinking that I wouldn't you <laughs> Well, did you actually said it? Something about the way you put the phrase together there just popped it into my head. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, starting to understand the dynamic of this podcast, Alan. <laughs> anytime we get people up to center, your job is to push it as close to the edge. As, as without... close to the edge? You don't know how much editing he does. <laughs> how can I know where the line is if I don't cross it? I, you're absolutely right. Come try ya! That was season seven of Stargate SG-1. And a great season was. It was a fantastic season. Hopefully by the time this is uploaded, the website will be working again. <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives you an indication when we record. That's right. We have a temporal marker now. All right then, folks. Thanks for listening. Next week, we will be back with the first episode of SG-1 Season 8. Hope you'll join us for that. I've been Mike. I've been Alan. And I be Dave. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. This has been a blast. Excellent. You've been listening to The Gatecast hosted by Alan and Mike. Join us at gatecast.co.uk. Stargate forever.